In this edition of Thinking Biblically, we will look at how a certain way of reading the Bible undermines the Bible. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's topic, I want to remind everyone to remember to subscribe, to share, to review, um, and I'll be sh explaining later on how you can contact me directly if you wish. And so I'm starting a new series this week. Uh, it's going to be something that I'll come back to from time to time. I'm not going to be doing this series altogether in the following weeks. God willing, we'll, we'll be having a... Um, a special guest from England join us and I'll be in conversation with him. I don't want to give you details now because it's not all in the can as they say. It, it's not all done yet so but that's the plan and then as uh, we're able we'll come back to this topic again. Well what is the topic? Well the topic is called Undermining, undermining forces. forces. Yeah so Undermining Forces uh, nine popular approaches attacking the authority of scripture today is my first was my first foray into self-publishing see it's a little bit on the small side i guess it's proper to call it a booklet rather than a book it's actually based on a sermon that i did some years ago i don't normally write out my sermons but that time i did i was interested in, in exploring self-publishing and i had this and i thought it could really work um, as a book or booklet and uh, seems that it has and so this book undermining forces um, ex explores these nine ways that many of us tend to read the bible where we unknowingly are actually undermining how god wants to speak to us through the scriptures and so i'll read you the um the the nine undermining forces that i i list here uh so they are what does it mean to me truth can't be known that's something that i talk about on a somewhat regular basis experience trumps scripture using culture as an interpretive key selective reading of scripture allegorical interpretation christianity isn't a religion that might be something that you heard just this past weekend misguided tolerance and then there's law versus grace so my plan is over time to handle these and there are there are other ones that uh, we might look at we'll see how it goes uh i one of the criticisms i received from the, from this little book is not so much the content but that i was focusing simply on the problems and not really looking at the solutions and i thought oh it'd be really good maybe to do a a larger version of the book where i actually give the solutions to the problems um, and so I thought I would start by doing it this way. Maybe it will become a book someday. We'll see how it goes. Be interested to hear what you think as we go along. Now, one might think, though, why focus so much on the problems? Now, we are going to look at the solutions. That, uh, that's what we're going to do. But we're starting each one of these with the problem. So why focus on the negative? Why not just 
talk positively about how we should read the Bible? Why are we talking about how not to read the Bible? Well, the reason why we're doing it that way is that these, in my opinion, that these approaches to reading scripture are so prevalent, they're so taken for granted that we need to address them first before we could talk about the best way to read scripture. Um, it's like wearing the wrong glasses, an illustration that I like to use. I, I have these glasses. Um, and uh, if a little while ago I ordered some online glasses and I have a I have some very special needs with my eyes and it took me a while to realize that the online company really couldn't give me the kind of glasses that I need and it all comes down to I actually need two different lenses. Uh, one is hardly lens. I, I gotta watch those rabbit rabbit trails, right? Anyway, so I need two different lenses and so I ordered these glasses from a renowned online seller. Um, and with other people I know that done really well, but in my case, I get these glasses, I put them on and everything's weird. Everything's really weird, man. I can't see properly. And it took me a while to realize what it was that was wrong. I tried another, um, another pair. They were great returning, getting me a new pair, a different kind of problem. And it turned out the reason was because they, they cannot do two different kinds of lenses. Um, and so because. When you put on the wrong glasses, everything looks wrong. In fact, those of us that have bad vision, our natural state, our default state of looking at life is actually not the way life looks. And it's only once we put on the proper lenses that we could see life the way it really is. And so it's necessary to deal with this vision issue before we start to examine I would start to examine the world ar uh, around me. And so it seems to me that one way or another, many of us, and I've done these, these many of these too, we have tended to put on these wrong kind of lenses and we're not looking at the Bible in the way that the Bible was meant to be looked at, the way it was meant to be read, the way it was meant to be understood. And so we could simply try to talk about the positives, but until we put on the right glasses, we're going to have issues. Our, our understanding of the Bible is going to be skewed. And so uh, we're going to start with the first one uh, in, in this edition. We're going to be looking at this first undermining, undermining force. force. What does it mean to me? So this this is the idea that you're you're reading the Bible and you're starting with it's important what you know what the Bible means to me and to you to us that is important it's not just simply a book to be read and and we kind of ad admire its wonderfulness from afar oh what a wonderful book that is uh, I've I've encountered where uh, people will read something about somebody that's amazing and. That's all what it's about. There's no, they don't derive any lessons from that reading. If we don't read the Bible in order to see what God is saying to us through it, we haven't fully read the Bible. We haven't fully engaged it. But that tendency to focus on what it means to me often becomes isolated as if that's what it's about and that is the way many of us are seeking to understand scripture. You know, perhaps you've been to a Bible study 
that's a little bit like this. Welcome everyone to our Bible study today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 23. We're going to be looking at verse 1. So let me read that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So who wants to go first? I'll go. Yeah, this this verse really challenges me because I want stuff, like like lots of stuff. And, and, and this verse is saying that I'm not supposed to want anything. Ah, what I hear is an outright rejection of selfish ambition. I shall not want. But if the Lord is my shepherd, then I will only want what he wants. Hey guys, I'm just reveling in this Lord is my shepherd thing. I could just feel his arms cradling me and patting my head and scratching my ears and... What's wrong? When I was a kid, I had a German shepherd and he was my best friend and and then and then he died but now i know that the lord is my best friend okay that's great well looking forward to next week we'll get together again and we'll continue with psalm 23 and look at he makes me lie down in green pastures yeah like the time i was running a race against this girl and i passed her well, of course, that was a bit of an exaggeration. I hope it was an exaggeration, but I also hope it's making the, the point. Now, we'll come back to Psalm 23 later. I don't want to leave you just with what you heard or saw there. We'll come back to Psalm 23. Uh, but um, I just want to give a couple other examples on how uh, we do this, so focus on what it means to me that we might miss what the Bible actually means. I've I've commented on this before. I think I have a, a, a an accessible a video uh, of this, but I, I want to repeat it. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Many people. This might be the only time. Like some people, you're in communities where people share Bible verses. I, I believe the Lord has this verse for you. This sort of thing, and even in situations where that is not normal, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven seems to be one that people just take for themselves, or somebody gives it to them like a present, or you might get it on a mug or a plaque, and it's it goes like this: For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so reading this by itself sounds just so lovely. This is how God thinks of me and my life, and it's positive, and I should be encouraged. And you know, many of us are bent more towards the negative, negative about ourselves, negative about life. And to hear that God has this, what sounds like this positive bent towards us, and then towards me personally, can be very encouraging. And I believe that God does have in a sense, a positive bent towards everyone. There's some people, their theology says otherwise. Uh, I do believe, depending on how we are responding to God's positiveness, will make a difference. And God does get negative with people. But God does have a positive heart towards his human creatures. And there are ways the Bible expresses this, there are ways we should express it, but is that really what Jeremiah 29 11 is all about? this kind of, of universal application uh, to everyone just like that. Well, I think there is a universal application, but how do we get to that universal application? 
And again, maybe not in every every case. Some of us are in big trouble. The Bible talks about God's wrath being upon people. I know that's not popular today. And to just to ignore that and focus solely on positive, positive, positive. You know, God loves everyone, like, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And it kind of came up in the, um, the, the Bible study skit that I shared with you. This, this ultra overly syrupy positive thing that that's not really what God's love is all about. Um, Jeremiah 29 11 is actually a letter that God gave to Jeremiah to write while Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem. It was the beginnings of the Babylonian exile. And he was to write a letter to the Jewish people in exile to encourage them to get on with life and trust God. And eventually God would restore them. And it's all part of this restoration motif uh, in the whole Bible with regard to the Jewish people. Uh, there was a time where God took the meaning of that, the actual meaning of that, and spoke it to me personally, not so much about me myself, but in my understanding for our own people, the Jewish people, that God did have a positive heart towards us and would eventually restore us to our land and to himself. If you have any issues with that topic, please let me know. I'll be very happy to interact with, with you, and I'm, I plan to, to speak on that sort of thing at another time in more detail. But for now, um, there's a reflection of God's heart for his people, in this case, the, the, the people of, of Israel, particularly the people of Judah that were exiled. And from there, we learn how God's heart is for all people who are, are in relationship with him. And that his heart is positive towards them. So there is a, an application or an implication of what he is saying through Jeremiah. But we need to start with the context of the this verse. Understand what God is saying there at that time uh, through the prophet to those people before we start to think of what it means to me. Because that's the only way to find out what it means. What the only way to find out what it means to me is we have to start off with what it means. Here's another one. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this verse is taken out of context so much and it's individualized and personalized on a regular basis and there is legitimacy to that but if we would understand it according to its context, according to the words being used, the impact of this verse should be greater than this, what I might call over-individualization of this verse. I remember hearing a famous preacher, it was Billy Graham, and he would say, concerning John 3.16, he preached on this on a, on a regular basis, he would say, take out the word world, and put your name in there. So I would go, for God so loved Alan that he gave his only son that if Alan believes in him, Alan should not perish but have eternal life. That sort of idea. Now, I believe there is some justification for that individualization of this verse. And especially when people are living in a time, and I think uh, Billy Graham's ministry arose at a time where faith was 
overly collective, where people were finding their their connection to God through, solely through their communities. And people were not being encouraged to have their own relationship with the Lord. And that still goes on today. And, and we need a balance between that community experience and community identification and the individual one, where I myself need to be a believer, where I myself need to be a follower. And so what Billy Graham was doing was he was using this verse to individualize the message of the good news of the Messiah. That, to some extent, is absolutely legitimate. But what's too bad is then well, because it's this idea of what does it mean to me, then its actual meaning can be obscured. And as I have studied this over time, it's so important to understand the world, the Greek word is cosmos. It's the created order. It's the whole creation. It's not just the people. It's not the people of the world. It's the world. So it's telling us that God so love and so doesn't mean loved so much. That's an interesting one. Look that one up. We tend to use so, you know, so much he loved the world, uh, like a lot. God loved the world very much that. The Greek word for so here means in this way. So here is how God loved the cosmos. He gave his son that whoever puts their trust in him, because that's what belief means. It's not just something that we have in our heads. It's not... Technically, we might call that mental assent, something we're thinking about. The English word belief is really, it's it's uh, translating the Greek word pistis, and whether it's in Greek or in Hebrew, the word means to trust. So whoever entrusts themselves to, trust in him, that is the son, should not perish but have eternal life. And so by this telling us that God so loved the created order, we find out God's heart for his creation, his creation plan, that which he started in, in Genesis chapter 1. God's committed to that. His heart is for his creation plan. That's why this we have the story of Noah's Ark. He could have destroyed the whole creation then, then and there, but he didn't. He replenished it. He restarted it. I like to say that it, he rebooted it, um, but it's probably more dramatic than a computer reboot. It was uh, it, it was this replenishing thing that he did because he was committed to that plan, and he and his plan of creation was a plan where he was going to work through human beings to bring about his will in the universe, and and because human beings have failed and failed and failed. In, in doing that, yet God still loves his creation plan. What does he do? He sends, he sends himself as a human being to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in this plan. And so this is really a big picture verse. It's not an individualized verse. And when we realize how big this verse is, for God so loved his creation that that he sent his son so that if I believe in him or you believe in him, we become incorporated into that plan. We're not going to perish. We're going to be part of the fulfillment of his rescue plan for the universe. Pretty big stuff. 
But when we start talking about this way, where we're it's be, where I'm, I'm saying that it is it is a, it's problematic to to overly focus on ourselves when we read the scripture and to make that the first thing, we might want to ask, well, then what about my what we might call devotional reading? Some people call it quiet time, your daily Bible reading, and however we might do that, and, and you know, be a good topic to look at what's what are some effective ways to do daily Bible reading, but we'll leave that for now. So what kind of work am I supposed to do? You know, I, I mentioned some things with John 3.16, Jeremiah 29.11 that many people aren't going to be aware of when they're simply reading through the Bible. And even if they're doing it on a regular basis, some people read through the Bible the entire year, and some of what I'm saying here may never even dawn on them. Well, what are we supposed to do? especially with daily Bible reading, not more intense study, though lately what I've been doing, and I've done all sorts of different things with my daily Bible reading, is um, I'm I'm being a little more intentional and a little more uh, studious in, in how I'm doing that, but that's a stage I'm going through in the past couple of years, uh, maybe a little more now, uh, and other times I just read a chapter or several chapters in a day, um, sometimes in the mornings and in the evening, this, this sort of thing, when I'm reading through the Bible. I also think it's a great exercise to go through the Bible as quickly as possible. There's these read the Bible in 40 day kind of things. I think that's great. But when you do that, you're not going to have the time to delve into the original languages and and, and look through commentaries and some of these things and and all the rest. You're just going to read. so, So how do you get away from putting the Bible through a filter of simply what it means to me. Because as I tried to demonstrate in our, our little Bible studies skit, it's so easy to just go with words in a certain way, or it's something means something to us in a sentimental fashion. And it's may or may not be God. How do we know if it's God? We're, really, this is about our feelings and, and all the rest of it. Well, I think, first of all, we need to be aware of what we're doing. We need to, we need to start, when, when we go to read the Bible, we need to ask God to show us what he wants to say to us through his word at that time. I remember when I first came to know the Lord um, over 40 years ago, some of you know my, my story, and now this young man, John, from California, came to Montreal. And after a few weeks of, of me asking the Lord to to come into my life, I got together with John and uh, he gave me a Bible and he explained to me what to do, how to read it sort of thing, very briefly. And uh, there's that passage of the parable of the sower that talks about some people, uh, the birds come and snatch the the um, the the seed uh, from the side of the road and how that's the, how the evil one is snatching the word of God because we don't understand it. And so John encouraged me and I, I can't say that I've done this every day since, uh, but he encouraged me to ask God to pierce my heart with his word and to do that, to pray a prayer like that before reading. And to be honest, I often just say a very quick little Lord, help me understand your word sort of prayer, but we should stop and ask God to do his work in our hearts that we would actually hear him through his word. We sometimes wonder, like, why do we go through these kinds of hoops? Well, they're not really hoops, because at the basis of our relationship with God is a relationship with God, and we could forget that. This is His Word. One of the beauties about understanding the Bible is the author of this book is still alive, and He wants to be active in our lives. He wants to be active in the process. 
And so we can ask him for his help. And even as we're reading, we might hit something and go, oh, that's interesting. Or what does that mean? We have the author with us. We know him. He's in us. And we can ask him for his help. And I wonder how often we simply just read. And if you're like me, we've all done it. We read. We don't even know what we read. That's Maybe that should be one of the undermining forces that... Um, that that I should be listing here, just kind of like a mindless, non-reading reading. But we're not talking about that as much as this idea of of focusing on what does it mean to me before we've discovered what does it mean. So we can go to God for help for that, and He will help us. There's more. We, in order to understand the, what the Bible means, we could be aware more of what's going on when we're reading. The, the simplest one is context. Uh, instead of simply reading verses, and you know, we could read a passage and yet still be kind of reading verse out of context, verse out of context. And, and because of the numbers, most uh, modern translations are in paragraphs now, uh, but we could go, we do tend to go verse, 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 and like verse ponder, verse ponder, if we actually ponder at all. But what we're doing is we're actually extracting verses. And because we're doing that, we're creating this situation where we're more prone to, you know, what does this mean to me as opposed to what does it mean? Because we, there's no way of knowing what each individual me, verse means on its own. The only way to understand the verses is by understanding them in the larger context. And that is the, the sentences around it, uh, the, their chapters, the chapter divisions were added later. So the, the more breadth of, breadth of scripture that we get, the more ready we are to understand what's going on. Now, we also need to be aware that we're dealing with a book in translation, that we're dealing with an ancient book far removed from us culturally, historically, and linguistically, like language-wise. And most of us are not going to fully overcome those kinds of obstacles. In fact, a lot of that is lifelong work. But by being aware that we're dealing with a translation of an ancient foreign text should give us some humility and prevent us from too quickly assuming we understand before we've dug a little bit. And so careful study is necessary. Again, I mentioned there's, I think it's a, it's a great idea to read through the Bible quickly, read a lot of chapters as you can, sometimes do less, sometimes do more, do different things in different years. That's, that's all good. But along the way, we need to do some more careful study. So take your time. And in the moment, especially take your time, think about what you're reading. Just think about it. Chew it over a little bit. Don't quickly think you understand or quickly think you don't understand. And that's often what we do. We read, kind of goes over our head. Oh, well, kind of like better luck tomorrow sort of idea. There's no luck involved here. We're looking for God's blessing. And with his help, and especially we take the time to look to him, he will help us to better understand what his word means so then we can then understand what it means to our, to us. We should never feel um, bad about asking questions of the text. I don't mean that we start talking to our Bibles, though it might look like that sometimes, 
but at least start with asking God, God, what does this mean? I, this this is strange. I, I don't really, I don't like this. Like all that killing. Like what's about that? And what's this? And and this seems to not fit with that. And, and that especially if you're thinking about what you're reading, you're going to run into things like that. Again, God knows the answers. You could ask him, but also don't be afraid or ashamed to ask for others for help. And some people know different parts of the Bible better than other parts. And so if you have people resources or book resources, we have the internet, has strengths, has weaknesses. You can ask your Bible questions in a sense uh, uh, through search engines on the internet and you might find some things, but be careful, especially if this is new to you, you could read something that could be very convincing and find out there might be 10 opinions about this particular verse or word or, or passage. And so try to find people, not that you trust so much that you no longer think, but, you know, honestly and, and, and in a thinking way, there's probably a better word for that, um, seek out what the scriptures actually mean. And so there's a there's a balance we need to str strike between looking to others, and that includes books and, and, and the internet. There's a balance between looking to others for help and depend and depending on them. So need to be careful. This is one of the reasons why I don't like uh, using a study Bible as my regular Bible reading Bible, um, because there's a tendency to depend on somebody's comments as we go along. I think study Bibles are are very handy but I would encourage them to be used as resources and not as daily reading Bibles. Um, that's not so much an issue of what does it mean to me, but we might fall into a trap where we're getting what it means to somebody else as opposed to what it really means, and we might fail to hear what God is seeking to say to us. So being in community, being in community where people uh, respect the Bible for what it is as the inspired Word of God, uh, that also really helps, but, but, and I find this very difficult, and I, I notice in some of the, um, the experiences I've had in, in different parts of Canada, there is a tendency uh, to not ask questions, there's a tendency to trust the experts, as well as then there's the trusting of self. And what we want to do is we really want to get to the scripture itself and find people who could help us with that. So if you get an idea, you often know, well, this might be a little strange. Maybe you could share it with someone. And by the way, I'm available. I love answering Bible questions. If I don't know the, the answer right away or think I don't know the answer or a, a good answer, I'll try to look it up. If I can't figure it out, I'll let you know. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm no the, the grand interpreter of, of, of the Bible, but... Um, I do have some breadth and depth of scripture and I might be able to send you in a good direction. And so let me know if you do have any of those tougher questions. And, and again, as you go along, feel free. You can always email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org and I'll do my best to answer your questions. I, was, I just want to follow up one thing about reliance on the, uh, the Holy Spirit, reliance on God as and through prayer. As we read the Bible, God will help us. God would show us. Um, but just because we think that God's spoken to us, all of a sudden our hearts are strangely warmed or we feel convicted or our emotions are touched or in some other way we start to cry or, or something, that doesn't mean... Uh, necessarily that we got it right. And so hold, 
hold your understanding of scripture lightly. Like sometimes people think that's inappropriate. There are elements of our faith that are very foundational, but there, as we're reading through the Bible and there are certain elements of it, we're trying to figure some things out, uh, get clarification from God and from people, but hold it lightly until the next time we come back to a, that passage or other passages that seem to address that kind of issue, hold hold your convictions lightly so that you're easily correctable, easily corrected, easily corrected by God. Now, this might surprise you. I, 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 a little bit of a subtopic here, and it has to do with what I might call the danger of topical preaching. Ooh, where did that come from? I thought we were talking about the problem of reading the Bible through the lens of what does it mean to me instead of what does it mean? Well, there's something about topical preaching that there is a tendency if you're a teacher, and I'm talking to Bible teachers, preachers, pastors, topical preaching has been the basic go-to for a lot of people. It used to be more standard to preach through the scriptures or, or follow a lectionary. Lectionary is like a Bible reading schedule. And, to, and follow those passages, which means then your preaching schedule is based on what these passages uh, say, not our choices of a particular topic. And there's all these series. I'm doing a series here. Um, but there's a tendency with series to, to focus on what we want to talk about. Maybe the Lord is guiding. I can't, I can't speak for you. Possibly the Lord is guiding. But even if that's the case, when we teach on a topic, there's a tendency to fish in the scriptures for passages that fit into our understanding of the topic. The, the, the right way, the, the, the really thorough way to do a biblical topic, let's say the love of God, that's a big one, is to actually go through the scriptures and learn what the Bible says on the love of God in this exhaustive way, and then organize everything you've learned on that topic and then teach that topic. Very few people have, like all of a sudden, you think, oh, you know, I need to talk about how a believer is properly to relate to government. I've, I've done a, a couple of talks on that. I'm not, I'm not going to comment whether they're good or bad. You, you know, you can respond to that. I try my best. Um, but I've been reading the Bible for over 40 years. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that I, I have all Bible knowledge, but I have some breadth. I have some depth of scripture. Um, and so my desire is to try to deal with the topic as holistically as possible. And that's what I want to encourage you Bible teachers and pastors out there to do as best you can, that when you're going to speak on a topic, to try to be as thorough as possible, rather than simply choosing those passages that, frankly, we prefer to choose. It becomes what we call proof texting, or just going to passages to bolster our particular viewpoint on that topic. What really should happen is, let's say we believe we should speak on a topic. As we go along in our preparation, it's possible that God's going to adjust our thinking. And if that's the place that you're in, then you are doing a lot better and keeping yourself away from um, doing what does the Bible uh, mean to me rather than what does the Bible actually mean. So I would encourage people at in terms of 
the regular diet of Bible teaching, it still seems to me it's, we're better with what we call expositional preaching, where we let the passage or passages dictate what we're going to talk about, rather than us coming with a topic and just try, and trying to find passages that fit what we want to talk about. Now, just because we're doing expositional preaching, whether it's through a lectionary, uh, or we somehow we go, okay, this we're going to be preaching through Matthew, or we're going to pre be preaching through Genesis, and then trying to to teach uh, the the, uh, the various chapters, even though we might be committed to an expositional approach, starting with scriptures, sometimes that can easily become uh, a springboard to topical preaching. It looks like we're going through the Bible, but let's say I've been assigned to, to speak on Genesis chapter 3. So, because of time, I'm not going to be able to speak about everything in the whole chapter, so maybe I would do a passage out of the chapter and still be expositional. But often what happens is we read through it, and oh, temptation. That's the big temptation scene. I'm going to talk about temptation. And then I, I, I go through the Bible, and I'm, I'm teaching on temptation. And so instead of expounding Genesis 3, now I've used the expositional assignment as a springboard for a topical sermon. And so I'm not doing really anything different than a normal topical sermon. When we do it that way, there's a tendency to simply preach what we know. And what happens is we think we're starting with the Bible when actually we're starting with self. And that's really the point of this, this particular undermining force. When we read the Bible, when we teach the Bible, are we are we starting with God and his word or are we starting with self? God help us to put him central, to actually be reading, studying, and teaching his word for all it's worth. Now, before we get to, I want to get back to Psalm 23 before we close, um, but I just want to say one more thing. The way I've been talking, let's not start with ourselves and, and we need to be careful not to focus on what we think the Bible means to ourselves. We need to be focused on what the Bible actually means. Does that mean God can never speak through a verse out of context? So remember, I referred to this, this experience that many people have had, including myself, of, of, of being given Jeremiah 29, 11, my plans for you are good and so on. Is that completely illegitimate? Is it possible that God wants to say something to someone through a verse that doesn't necessarily have to do with the context that verse within which it's found? And I think it is possible because I think God can do what he wants. He can use Bible verses that way. We need to be careful. We need to be careful not to take that specific kind of message to us that maybe his spirit is trying to say through someone or in our own Bible reading, and then generalize it and make it sound like this is what the Bible means. So we need to be careful to continue to distinguish between what the Bible means and then what it might mean to us. And so then when we make that very individualistic kind of application to ourselves, we are, um, we are not undermining 
what the Bible actually says. Now, see, I, I believe that God can do this with all sorts of things, not just the Bible. Uh, I like to tell the story many years ago, we were living in the Vancouver, BC area, and um, it was sometime in the afternoon, and I was feeling despondent for some reason and discouraged, and I went to take a walk. And I'm walking, and my head's kind of down as I'm walking, trying to pray, and maybe muttering to myself, that sort of thing. And um, um, and on this particular street, and at some point, I lift my eyes up. That's a kind of a biblical statement right there. I lift my eyes up, and there's this big real estate sign. And usually, as you know, real estate signs in front of homes are, I don't know what the dimensions are, but they're maybe about a meter or a yard wide, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and about a half a meter, half a yard uh, high, a typical real estate sign. But this was one of those big ones that you'd see in front of a commercial property, you know, on these kind of wooden slats, big stands sort of thing. Um, so it's huge for a house real estate sign. And the name of the real estate agent, I believe her first name was Wendy. It'd be funny if you're actually watching this. Um, but it said Wendy Faith. Her last name was Faith. And I look up and I see Wendy Faith. And in that moment, kind of like pow in the heart, God's speaking to me and reminding me to trust him. I believe God does that. And he does that in all sorts of ways. And I would encourage more of us to lift up our eyes and, and open our ears to see what God wants to show us and hear what God is saying. I think we miss so much because we go through life with our heads down and muttering to ourselves. What he did with the real estate sign for me that day I believe he can do and does do through his word. How much more through his own word? But let's be careful that we know what's happening and we're not actually interpreting scripture. We're simply hearing God speaking to us through a part of scripture. So uh, briefly, let's go back to Psalm 23. Uh, which um, I hope gave you a little bit of a giggle and a little made a bit of a little point when I showed you the skit near the beginning of our time uh, together. Um, but uh, I want to make a couple of comments on Psalm 23 before I sign off. So Psalm 23 is one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. And as many of you know, it's normally done at funerals, but it's not actually a funeral psalm. There is this statement about death. I'll mention that in a moment. Uh, but I understand because of the reference to the shadow of death, that's why it's used at funerals. And I actually tried teaching on, on Psalm 23 over a period of time and, and you know, tried it. When people are so used to this as a funeral psalm, they feel like I'm stealing it, uh, this from them. That's, that's not my point. You can use it in your funeral. But understand that this is a psalm not for the dead, but for the living. There's two images in this psalm, and some people try to make it as if there's one, but it does seem that there's two. From the beginning through verse 4, in our in most English translations, verses 1 through 4 seem to be solely about a shepherd and his sheep, and then the remaining verses have to do with being a guest at a banquet. And again, some people, they try to take the anointing my head with oil, apply that to what the shepherd might do to the sheep. It's possible, but this preparing a table before my enemies does sound more like a banquet as opposed to being a, a sheep of a shepherd. 
And so I just want to briefly look at the section that refers to the shepherd and sheep. So it's a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now we could expound each phrase of this psalm, but I just want to summarize a perspective that I think comes from carefully studying it. So um, what David is saying here is that he won't suffer lack because God is going to make sure that he's taken care of. It doesn't mean that he's never going to have a need um, or that he's detached from having needs. But in the in the big picture, God takes care of him. So he doesn't live as a needy person. You know needy people. That they're always, there's something that, where they're draining energy from others. David knows where his source is, and it's in God, not in people and not in other things. And so God takes care of him. He leads him to nourishment, to refreshment and rejuvenation. That's how God works in his life. And again, that doesn't mean he's on easy street and uh, easy peasy, comfortable all the time, or else he wouldn't need rejuvenation, right? And God always leads him in the right way within the purposes of God, which means that sometimes God will lead him into and through life-threatening difficulties. That's the shadow of death. Even, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, which comes from being led in paths of righteousness for God's name's sake. So even though that will take him into these very dark death-like valleys, he will not fear anything bad happening to him. And God comforts him both by the rod and the staff, by disciplining him and by fighting off his enemies. And so that's why we can say, the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. So what do you think? What do you think of that? What do you think of the things I shared? What did you think of the little Bible skit? I'm, I'm thinking of doing more, so you better tell me. Not that I'll necessarily only do what you say, but I'd love to hear from more people on this. Um, and so you could leave comments below. I hear it really helps with the whole YouTube thing if you actually put things in the comments. So even if it's a way to go or um, that was a waste of time, like say something, folks, it really helps. Um, and then uh, there's also the like, um, there's, a, there's another... Thing to press too. I won't mention that, but there is the thumbs up that you can do as well. And and um, so you can put comments in the comment section, or if you want to make sure that you, well, get into discussion or get a direct answer from me, do so by writing to me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Mm -hmm.